scripture comes from the first letter of Peter, chapter 1. And I know the bulletin says differently, but I'm going to start with verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who are being protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, even if now for a little while you have had to suffer various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith, being more precious than gold, that though, imp though perishable is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Although you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with an indescribable and glorious joy, for you are receiving the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Last week, if you were here, you had the opportunity to hear Pastor Karen begin a series on John Wesley, and we got to hear a little bit about uh, the founder of Methodism and his childhood and his early years at school. And he's a very fascinating man, and of course, Pastor Karen touched on the highlights, but there's a lot more. If you're, you're interested, we encourage you to continue your own study at home, and you can Google John Wesley, and you'll get all kinds of good things online. And this week, we pick up and move forward from the point where he was at school, and I'm going to take you into the next stage of his life. But I wanted to tell you one of the reasons that I believe that our looking at who John Wesley was and who we are today as Methodists is important is because I believe that we, as United Methodists, have something unique to offer the world. I believe that we have unique gifts and unique things to offer the world that we need to be giving to the world because it's very rare elsewhere. And so I really believe in, not that it makes us better to be Methodists, although some might believe that, but, uh, but we have something unique to offer the world. And I hope today that you'll see that not only in your own spiritual life, but who we are as a church family in the Brecksville community and beyond here. In the spring of 1992, I was a junior biology major at Allegheny College. And I had been studying hard for three years and had come to the end of my junior year and God was really wrestling me about my future and the direction he was going to uh, take me. And it wasn't a direction that I really wanted. I was planning to go into medicine. All my plans were aimed that way. All my coursework, everything that I had done had been planning to go into medicine. And the Lord began calling me another direction and I didn't want to hear it. I don't know if any of you have ever received a, a kind of an indication from God that he wanted you to go to a certain way and you didn't want to do it. But he and I really wrestled that spring about my future. And I kept saying, you can have me after medical school, Lord. You can have me after I've made everybody in my family happy that I've completed the journey that I started. Because as you know, when you take on a dream, everybody in your life takes it on with you. And so it can be difficult to change paths, not only for yourself, but for the sake of the others in your life. And so I said, you can have me after. And I remember telling him that numerous times. But the Lord just kept saying, gently calling me to him and saying, I'm not going to wait. You know, we're going to move on this path now if you'll be obedient. And I'm so thankful that 
that he took me in other paths. And one of the people that he intersected with my life during college at that time was a woman named Denise. And Denise was my campus minister. She was basically my youth director at college. And I met with her weekly during that time, and we would have Bible study and prayer and study together. And at the end of every time we met, Denise would say, Lisa, someday God's going to use you in amazing ways. And as a you know, 19, 20-year-old, I was like, yeah, whatever. You know, I, I, I didn't really believe it. But as we met weekly and as she kept encouraging me with her words and her love and our time together, I began to move in the path that the Lord would take me, which was into ministry, and I'm so thankful that he took me down that path. Wesley came to a crossroads about the same time I did it in, in his age of life because he had completed his schoolwork at... at um, at Oxford, but he had remained a tutor. And of course, the tutors then weren't the same as now. He was more of an instructor to a group of young men. And they had this holy club. And if you want to read more, I have a very long paper on it that I wrote for my Wesleyan history class. But uh, the holy club, was, it's 30 pages, so I don't think you'll want to read it. But if you're interested, I'll, I'll send it to you. But uh, the Holy Club was a very formative time for his life, and he was facing a crossroads. And he, had, he was a man with great boldness and gusto. As Pastor said last week, he wasn't afraid of confrontation, and his family was part of, um, uh, they were a bit of a renegade family as far as the status quo. And so Wesley didn't see people disagreeing with him as a failure. He actually, I think, enjoyed that and saw it as his being on the right path when everybody else was... Uh, was not. But at this time, he could have gone a lot of directions. He could have gone into a curacy. He could have t been a curate at, a, at a, a parish. He could have maybe married or started a family. He definitely could have stayed within academia. He was a brilliant young man, and he could have stayed within the world of academia. But at that age, he was, I think, looking for a little adventure after having lived in his world of England and and the, the area he lived in, and he was ready to go out and see a bit of the world, and so he felt a calling to go and minister to the Native Americans in America. And so the only time John Wesley was in America, on American soil, he came to Georgia and lived in Savannah. And right from the start, the whole thing really was falling apart. He got on the boat for America, and there were these storms that terrified him, and he, he was in mortal danger several times and didn't really care for his reaction to fear. I think he uh, didn't care for the terror that it evoked. And when he arrived in America, the colonists in Savannah were a bit hard, and he didn't really uh, seem to make a, a very tight group of friends. Uh, he was pretty alone in Savannah, and because of who he was, he tended to stir up things, and so the colonists weren't quite sure who this young man was, and the powers that be that were over John Wesley pretty much put a stop to his going to the Native Americans. They, he wanted to go out into the wilderness, and they kept putting up roadblock after roadblock to keep him from pursuing that. And, and then at one point, he was under arrest, if you can believe it, for not serving someone communion. And he was, there was a warrant for his arrest, and he came before a, a judge, and everything just kind of caved in on him. And he ended up getting on a ship and heading back secretly back to England. And when he arrived in England, he had a lot to answer for. And it really was his first vocational failure. I mean, the, the, the man had not faced a lot of failure in his life. He was brilliant. He had a lot of resources. He was witty. He was likable. Up to that point, his life, everything, most everything he'd touched had been golden. I'm sure there were a few times he'd stumbled and, and had difficulties, but this was the first time that he had a real huge failure on this kind of a, a, a scale and then had to go back home and answer for it. And to on top of all of that, not only was his vocation 
was he struggling in the ministry? But his, he hit the biggest spiritual crisis, I believe, of his days, and definitely up to that point. He'd grown up in a family that was very faith-filled, and there was no question he was going to be a preacher and he was going to move in these ways. But that boat ride to America I mentioned began a spiritual crisis that took over two years to, to work through. And the reason he had the crisis was the fear and the, the stark terror that he felt at the moments when he might lose his life he didn't know what to do with that because he equated that fear with a lack of faith. And to exacerbate things, there was this group of 26 Germans on the ship that were from the Moravian church who, when they were faced with that same terror, sang hymns and were calm and seemed to be fearless uh, in the face of death. And to his mind, you know, he was this great you know, a great uh, speaker and orator and, and thinker, and yet in the face of fear, here were these simple German people who were able to face fear with a calmness, and here he was terrified. And all of you know how difficult the colony life was, and he faced mortal danger on more than one occasion when he arrived here. There were several instances where he could have lost his life, and as you know, a lot of people lost their lives as America was colonized. And so this fear just kept popping up, and his own doubts kept creeping in of, am I even a Christian? Do I even have faith? I mean, he was wrestling with foundational core issues that I don't think had come up in his life before. And that can be terrifying. I've never been in an earthquake, but I've heard when people say that suddenly the ground that you assume is going to be your foundation with your every step is suddenly out from underneath you, it's terrifying. And I believe that was what John Wesley was coming into was this time of real un, unsteadiness where his foundations that he'd always trusted were being shaken. And he was facing vocational and a spiritual crisis. And the other thing he was struggling with was a theology at that time, which a lot of us sitting here, I think, struggle with the same theology and a faulty theology that you earn your way to heaven. We're going to work our way to heaven. We're going to have more good stuff in our good pile than bad stuff in our bad pile. And when we get to the pearly gates, St. Peter's going to look through the book, and he's going to see, okay, yeah, Pastor Karen had 450 good deeds and only 30 bad deeds, so she gets in. And this other person is going to be this and that. That's not how it works. Even though in our American minds where everything we have that's good we have to earn, that is not how the faith works. And... Wesley was struggling with this very same concept of earning his way to heaven. He also lived in a time where you had to earn your keep, and you had to work hard to get what you have. And so when he was faced with these, these Moravians who put their stock in grace being and faith being what opens the door to heaven, not works, he really came up against a very difficult, uh, a very difficult time. And I do believe, as in the scripture we heard Libby share, that Trials can bring out the genuineness of faith. It also can shine light where it's not genuine and where it's struggling. And that, to me, is uh, some of the great power of what a trial that comes into our life can bring us. And so poor John was just struggling on all of these different fronts. And thankfully, when he arrived home, he'd, con he'd continued to be very close to these Moravians. And if you don't know what the Moravian church is, I'll share briefly that they were they began in the Moravia, in the Czech Republic area, back in the early, uh, early 1500s. And John Huss, which is spelled H-U-S, if you've heard of him before, he was a martyr, burned at the stake, and a group of people that had followed him 
and believed in his reform, he was actually a reformer way before uh, Luther, they followed him in this small, these small community grew. And then in John Wesley's time, there was a man named Count Zinzendorf who opened up his estate to this small band of Moravians, and there was kind of a revival during that period of, of the Moravian church, which are also out of the Pietist history, but that's a whole other, whole other history. But the Moravians uh, were very influential on who we are today as Methodists, and when you count all the sorts of things that we believe as a church, uh, many of those things can be hearkened back to this time when John Wesley met these Moravians. And when he arrived home, he met this man, Peter Bowler. And there's not a lot about Peter Bowler out there. I did a paper also on him, so if you want to read that, you can. But it's only seven pages, so it's not as bad. But Peter Bowler was a Moravian, and he and John Wesley and Charles Wesley met on a very regular basis. And the great thing about Peter Bowler is I think he asked John questions nobody else had the guts to ask him. Because when you're faced with somebody who's got a lot of wit and intelligence and they seem to have it all together and they're moving and shaking, you don't really question them and their underpinnings a lot. You just assume things. And I'm sure a lot of people assumed that, that didn't know John Wesley intimately, that things were fine and that he was going to pick up after coming back from America and he was going to go forward. But Peter Bowler asked him some tough questions like, are you saved? Do you, you know, have you been saved? And do you believe in your salvation? And, and trust that. And when John answered, he answered, yeah, I believe Jesus is the Savior of the world, and I hope, I hope that he saves me. His, his whole language and attitude wasn't sure, and Peter Bowler said, you need to work this out. You need to get a grip on whether you believe that you're saved or not, because that's going to affect all of your life and your faith. And so he and, he and John wrestled that out. And the most famous line that he said to John, which most people, uh, many people in the Methodist Church have heard before, is he was the one who said to John Wesley when John was thinking of giving up the ministry, preach faith until you have it. And when you have faith, you'll preach it. He didn't want John to just chuck it all in because the ground was shaky and the trials were getting him down. He wanted him to keep moving forward with the assumption that God would be out ahead of him with the faith that he needed, and that eventually, if he kept moving forward, he would bump into that faith, and that the faith would, would carry him then, which it did. Thankfully, just a few days later, uh, a little while later, he had his heartwarming experience. But Peter Bowler uh, pointed out something that I think a lot of us even struggle with today, which is we keep our faith in our heads, and we don't always intermingle the heart and the head together. You need both. Both were given to us, the heart where the center of emotion and our heads, the center of reason. Both of those were given to us for a purpose, and both need to be a part of your faith. But John lived in his head. You know, John Wesley was a head. He was a thinker, and, and you know, the heart and the emotion wasn't always, wasn't always there. And Peter Bowler said, you need to preach faith even if you don't feel it, even if you don't think it. You need to keep moving forward in faith, and God will be there, which is really some of the beginnings of one of the greatest gifts I believe that the Methodist Church has to offer the world, which is grace. Right now, the Asbury Bremoth Circle, uh, that we meet together once a month, and we've been studying grace. And it is amazing what that group has uncovered of misconceptions we have about grace. We think all kinds of crazy things about grace in the light of our own failures and our own crossroads. And grace is messy. It's not always fair. God forgives things that we never would forgive, that we would feel are, were unforgivable. Grace is messy, but we have grace to offer the world. We are the only faith in the world that grace is offered freely. There's nothing you can do to get it. 
faith alone brings salvation, not works. And we are the only group, not Methodists, but Christians, we are, as Christians, the only group in the world offering freely grace. And we have that to offer the world, to bring it out and bring it into the sunshine and let people feel the, the weight of uh, the things that they feel are unforgivable taken off their shoulders. We can't earn our way to heaven. And this is one of the things that Wesley really wrestled with, uh, was, that, was that thought. And you also need to remember that you need to offer grace to yourself. And when you face these crossroads and these intersections, remember that they're not quickly or easily resolved. You know, when I, when I think of the story, I think of Paul and Barnabas with Peter and John, because Paul, as we know, was persecuting Christians. He gets knocked off his horse by the voice of God, by Jesus, and he's blinded, and Barnabas picks him up and scoops him up and, and takes him and, and helps get him back on the path. But you know how long at one point is mentioned in Acts that he was away before he even began his ministry? We always think of horse got knocked off, then he was healed, and then he spent a little time with Barnabas, then he went out into his missionary journeys. No, there was 14 years at one point that's mentioned that Paul was in, uh, you know, kind of away from the ministry and away from the, the light. John Wesley, as I mentioned, over two years before he kind of worked out, and he still, his whole life was working things out, but as far as the crisis goes, he was over two years. So when we face these crossroads and these trials, I like to have resolution very quickly, and that is not always what happens with our faith. We have to continue to preach faith or live faith until we have it, and then when we have faith, we'll live it. So offering grace to yourself is very important as well as to the world, and John Wesley teaching us about prevenient grace, which is one of those Methodist words of God bringing the grace to us before we even go looking for it, is something that I think is a great, one of the greatest gifts that we have to offer the world. So would you bow your heads and pray with me? Lord, we thank you so much that you're a God who doesn't hide from us, who doesn't make us chase him or earn his love, that you're not a God that uh, tries to trick us and, and send us the wrong way, Lord, but that you're a God who actually pursues us and that you actually come for us and you offer us faith and grace even before we know to ask for it. So, Lord, we pray that as we face the trials of our life, and we face the, the struggles that may come, not just in our vocations and families, but also within our own faith, Lord, that you would continue to put people in the intersection to uh, collide with us at just the right time when we need those words of encouragement and when we need that guidance. And Lord, help us to be the Peter Bowlers to others. Help us to be the encouragers to people who come into our path that are hurting and don't know which direction to go next. Help us to be words of comfort and just maybe a friendly listening ear when someone is hurting. And we know, Lord, uh, just even from hearing our prayers this morning, that people all around us are hurting in so many different ways. So, Lord, in a world of hurt, in a world of revenge, in a world of terror and fear and doubt, Lord, help us to be a voice of grace. Help us to be like those Moravians where your grace and love shines on our face. And people want to know, what is it that makes us different? We want to be that type of person, Lord, to the communities and the world around us. So be with us, Lord, as we continue to serve you and to strive to grow closer to you, just as John Wesley did in his day. Help us to change the world in our day in the way that he did in his. And we pray all this in your precious son, Jesus' name. Amen.